Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. It's important for us to recognize that even when we can't see that God is at work in people, He might very well be. And we need to learn not to, you know, be so concerned over the fact that we don't see outward things happening necessarily and be more confident that God can be at work. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Acts. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 31, in a message titled, Saul and Jesus on the Road to Damascus. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So we come today to just a you know, shift in the story here in the book of Acts, the conversion of Saul. So I've, I've just entitled the message uh, simply, Saul and Jesus on the road to Damascus. But let's remember that Jesus had said that the gospel would go from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, ultimately out to the ends of the earth. That the gospel would cross uh, the borders of the land of Israel and, and go out to the Gentile nations. Now, as the time draws near for that to take place, God calls and begins to prepare the man who is to be his instrument. But who would have ever imagined that the man ordained by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles was at that very moment in time the church's greatest enemy and persecutor? I mean, this is one of those things where it's really a surprise in so many ways. And of course, we're, we're so far removed from the event and you know we're, we're familiar with the facts, at least most of us are, I think. I still do find occasionally that there are people who have no idea that Paul the Apostle was formerly Saul of Tarsus. But at the time that all of this took place, you, know, you can be, I think, pretty certain that, that no one was thinking that this guy our, our greatest opponent is one day going to be uh, the greatest advocate for the gospel. But this is just one of those uh, amazing things that, that God does. And the conversion of Saul of Tarsus from persecutor to apostle is really one of the great miracles of the New Testament period. I mean, this is a miraculous thing from start to finish, as we can see. A man who was known as Lord Littleton an English statesman and skeptic who originally set out to disprove Christianity by disproving the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He and his friend uh, thought that if they could disprove the conversion of Saul and disprove the resurrection of Jesus, then of course they could just disprove Christianity. And so they set out on a mission to do that. But when it was all said and done, um, this is what Lord Littleton ended up writing. He said, the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone 
duly considered is of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. So these guys that set out to undermine the Christian faith by trying to disprove these things as actually, you know, having occurred historically, ended up uh, through the process acknowledging that these were indeed not, not just historical facts, but indeed miraculous events that took place. So, so what we want to do, I, I had John uh, read quite a few verses, as you know, but I wanted us to, to just get the whole story. And now I, wa- I want us to walk through the verses that we read, and I want to look at a few things. Number one, I want to look at Saul in his pre-conversion state, and then we'll look at his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then I want to talk about his, uh, Saul's conversion process, which is uh, hidden here in a sense, but it's there. And then um, we'll look real quickly at Saul and these two other men that are mentioned here, Ananias and uh, Barnabas. And then ultimately we will just kind of look for application for today. So many, there are many places in the New Testament where these events and the things that surrounded these events are referred to. Luke has already told us certain things about, about this man, Saul. If we just think back for a minute, back into uh, previous chapters, we read there that the witnesses, those who witnessed against Stephen, remember all of this kind of came about through the, through the death of Stephen, but they laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So that was our very first introduction to Saul. He was guarding uh, the clothing of those who were executing Stephen. And uh, Luke goes on to say, now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death and he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And now here in the first verses of chapter nine, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, again, we're reading about this as history. We're obviously very far removed from it. Um, But you know, there are people today that they know this story by experience. It's not Saul but it, it's somebody else who's doing this kind of thing to them. So understand, I mean, you know, I think, I know that I do. Sometimes you just read over these things and you know, you're, you're just reading over and you don't stop to think about the reality of what this was like for those Christians at the time. This, this would have been like, um, you know, the Gestapo beating down your door or, or the KGB or the Taliban or, you know, the secret police of whatever sort, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that was going on. And as we see here, uh, Saul is breathing out threats and murder and he's hauling people off. And so Luke tells us about that. But Paul, Saul, of course, is Paul, right? He will make reference to these things himself in his writings, as he writes his letters in writing to the Galatians, he said this, he said, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. In writing to Timothy, he said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man. Insolent meaning a violently arrogant man. And then um, when later on in Acts, 
when Saul is there before King Agrippa, he tells his story once again, and, and listen to what he says. He says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is Paul telling his conversion story to King Agrippa. And, and notice the, the language that he uses here. He says that he, he compelled them to blaspheme. When they were put to death, he cast his vote against them. He was exceedingly enraged against them. The language used of Saul and later even by Saul to describe himself at the time was really that of a wild beast. That, that's really the, the imagery here, that he was like a ferocious beast, just ripping anything and everything to shreds that, that he could get his, you know, sink his teeth or his claws into. That's how he presents himself. So this would have been just, a, you know, a very frightening season, to say the least, for the believers because of this one man, Saul. But who would have ever guessed that, that as he had received those letters from the high priest and, and as he was on his way to Damascus. Now, what, what it appears here is that many of the saints fled from Jerusalem and went to Damascus where there was a, a large Jewish community and they would have assimilated into the synagogues there. So he gets letters from the high priest giving him permission to go into these synagogues and to arrest anyone who is of the way. That was, um, that was how they referred to believers at the time. Anyone who is of the way and to bring them bound back to Jerusalem. So that brings us to the next part in the story as he is traveling with, with a, a delegation to Damascus we read there that suddenly a light, verse three, shone around him from heaven. Now, when he repeats the story in Acts 26 to Agrippa, he says that the light that shone around him was brighter than the midday sun. You know, imagine being in the, in the desert in the Middle East at midday, you've got a pretty bright sun going. He says the light then uh, that, that shone around him was actually brighter than the midday sun. And so it says that he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And look at verse six. So he trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So this moment, um, you know, this is one of those, those events that you only hope that this was captured on film so we can see it uh, in the future, what, what this would have looked like. 
just, you know, again, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he, Saul is struck down by this light. This voice begins to speak to him. And the big question is, who are you? And the response is, I am Jesus. But notice Paul's question, who are you, Lord? He, he knows that whoever this is, he, he knows enough to refer to them as, as the Lord, as the sovereign. And so we see what seems like I mean, it, it was sudden in one sense, obviously, because, you know, he's dead set on his mission. And in many ways, you know, th there's no sense that there was any kind of softness that was developing in him. There, there was no uh, second thought about what he was doing. He, he was just on this mission, continuing to, to devastate the church. But there were things that were happening that led up to this moment. So on the one hand, it's a sudden conversion, but from what Jesus says to him, we have to understand that there was a process that had begun at some point because Jesus says this to him. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? Well, a goad was uh, used by the farmer to prod the cattle, to prod the ox. And it was painful. And the ox would, you know, as the ox would kick back against the goad, it would cause the ox pain, and the ox would eventually stop doing that because of the pain. So Jesus uses that picture, and he says it to Saul. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, which shows us that there actually was a process and that Saul, even though externally it didn't appear that there was even the remotest conviction about his behavior, there, there was something going on in him. And what was that? And, and how did that even begin to occur? Now, some people have speculated, and I think it's a legitimate speculation. Some people have speculated that Saul had actually had an encounter with Jesus during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, he never says that he did, although in, to the Corinthians, he does, on, on one, in one place he says, we have known Christ after the flesh, but now we know him thus no longer. So it could be there that he's making just a little reference to having some kind of encounter with Jesus, but if you think of what he says about himself, he says that he was brought up in Jerusalem. He was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. We know he was a student of Gamaliel. You know, all of these things that are happening, it hasn't been all that long since the events uh, surrounding the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus had taken place. So in some ways, you could easily understand that, that Saul would have been in and around Jerusalem at the same time that Jesus was there. And when we read in the Gospels about those times where the Pharisees would gather against him and they would, you know, interrogate him and they would challenge him and, and those kinds of things, I mean, it, it is possible that Saul was among them. 
So it's possible that at some point there was some, you know, engagement with Jesus. It's speculative. We don't know for sure. But of course, if there was, then we would understand how with the other additional things that that would have become something that would would stick with him. And that would become something that would be a goad prodding at him. So we're not sure whether or not that happened, but this is what we do know for sure. Uh, Of course, the testimony and the witness of Stephen would have been definitely, I think, part of what Jesus was referring to here when he says it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Because Stephen, he preaches basically the gospel to the Sanhedrin, of which Paul was almost certainly a part When Paul says to Agrippa, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, that would seem to refer to casting his vote as a member of that religious body. So when Stephen gives his defense of the faith, of course, we know Saul was there when they were stoning him, but it's perfectly reasonable to think that he was there listening to the whole message. And here's this young man, Stephen, whose face is shining as an angel, who in the power of the Holy Spirit is walking Israel's leaders through their national history and at the end of it, calling them to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah and pointing to the fact that they were guilty of of putting him to death. So that, coupled with then the witness of Stephen dying, So Saul is there guarding the clothing of those who are putting Stephen to death, but he sees everything that's happening. He sees that Stephen is looking up into heaven. He sees that Stephen is saying, Lord, do not lay this sin to their account. He sees that far from Stephen, you know, being greatly distressed over the fact that he's being stoned to death, there's there's a glory to it. There's, there's something supernatural that's happening. So he sees this. And this would have undoubtedly been one of the things that, that would have been a goad. But there's one other thing that I think we can say was the case as well. Because Paul says it later. In writing to the Romans, Paul talks about a point in time, although he doesn't tell us when that point was. He talks about a time when he had a sudden awakening to his own sinfulness. Now, he talks about how he was confident as a Pharisee, how uh, according to the law, the standard of the law, he said to the Philippians, he said he was blameless. But in writing to the Romans in the seventh chapter, He says this, he said, the commandment, which is a reference to the law, he said, the commandment that I thought would give life, I found it to bring death. So there's a certain point in his own experience where he begins to realize that all of his outward goodness, all of his religious devotion, all of that really doesn't mean anything because he begins to understand that he's a sinner. He says when the commandment came or when he understood the the fullness of the commandment that it was meant not to just 
deal with outward behavior. He said, when the commandment came and I understood that it was also to govern the, the thoughts and the intents of the heart, when the commandment came, sin awakened and I died. So, so that was a, an experience he had. So we see that even though it seems like just a, a completely sudden conversion, I mean, it was in one sense, but there was a process that had been taking place. And now this is the culmination of that process. But it's a process, and this, I, I want to emphasize this, it's a process that nobody else knew about. You see, this is important for us, and I'll, I'll apply it in a minute, but it's important for us to recognize that even when we can't see that God is at work in people, he might very well be. And we need to learn not to, you know, be so concerned over the fact that we don't see outward things happening necessarily and, and be more confident that, you know, God, God can be at work. I, I've talked to so many people over the years who told me that even though outwardly there didn't appear to be any conviction of sin or any sense that they needed to get themselves right with God, the truth of the matter was that was all going on in their hearts and minds even though they were doing a really good job of, of keeping that hidden. So that is what we see here. We see this, this process that was taking place. And so Saul, as he's arrested really by Jesus, he's sent into Damascus. And this man, Ananias, and we don't know anything about him except what we read here, but he was obviously a solid believer in Jesus, the Messiah. And the Lord appears to him and tells him to go, arise, verse 11, go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on your name. So everybody knew why this man was coming to town. And I love the way Jesus Responds, But the Lord said to him, go, <laughs> for he is a chosen vessel of mine. Now, this must have absolutely blown Ananias' mind. What? He's a chosen vessel of yours. He's a chosen vessel of mine, Jesus said, and he will bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, as we go on and we read through the story, did you notice when we get to the end, it is almost like Saul has taken the place of Stephen. And the very same things that Stephen was encountering, remember it was the Hellenistic Jews that brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin to condemn him. And, and now at the end of this story, we find it's the Hellenistic Jews that are trying to kill this man now because of his faith. 
For the month of April, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Teens today are faced with challenging questions about the Christian faith. How can they believe that the Bible is true? Who cares if you're a boy or a girl? Isn't love just love no matter what? In her book, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin addresses these and other questions that teens ask themselves or are confronted with. If you're a parent, grandparent, guardian, or friend, this book will make an excellent gift for a tween or teen to help them tackle the challenging questions of this generation. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. To order 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Acts. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.